Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you are good and you are all we need and your son Jesus is all we need and the wonderful promised presence of your Holy Spirit is all we need and yet so often we look elsewhere we exalt ourselves rather than you and so we ask for your forgiveness and ask that you would speak to us now and speak through me that truly all the words of my mouth and all the meditations and decisions of our hearts would be faithful and true to you and would be what you want them to be and that you would not leave us unchanged but that you would transform us through your son Jesus Christ and through the power of your Holy Spirit and all God's people said amen this past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday which began the 40-day period that we call Lent in the Christian year and that runs from Ash Wednesday through Holy Saturday, which is the day before Easter Sunday, uh, minus the Sundays in between. And so this parallels, uh, the early church designed this period to, to sort of parallel the, the period that we read about and Corey read about in the scripture where Jesus was in the desert, which um, parallels a number of other significant episodes like with Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament, not to mention the 40 years in the wilderness that the Israelites wandered around before they made it into the promised land finally. But in the Christian year, the, the idea is that to move through time in a, in a Christ-centered way and to focus and to enter into and experience the full story of salvation through Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. And so Lent is kind of the heart and soul of the Christian year. It gets us to the heart of the work of salvation. And Holy Week is the climax to that central season of Lent. Holy Week beginning with Palm Sunday, where uh, if we celebrate in such a way, we walk with Jesus, with him, on that final faithful journey to Jerusalem. We move through to Maundy Thursday or Holy Thursday, where we sit with Jesus at the table, and we hear him talk about the new commandment, and we see him wash the disciples' feet, and we sit with him at that last Passover meal that he transforms into what becomes the basis for our celebration of the Lord's Supper, our Holy Communion. And we hear him predicting that the betrayer is at the table. And then we walk with him to that betrayal. And as he's led away to his false unjust trial. Then we move into Good Friday where we see him go through unimaginable sufferings, the chief of which is when he's actually crucified on that Roman cross and he dies and he's laid in the tomb and then we move on to that third day celebration on which he's raised from the dead on Easter Sunday morning but before we can get to all of those things before we can get there we have to start here in the wilderness and we may not think of that but we can't even think about those events being something that will save us unless we walk with Jesus into the wilderness and see what he does there. Now, the, probably one of the most recognizable names from baseball history is Yogi Berra. And uh, I didn't realize that he, he just passed away just a, about three or four years ago at 90 years old. And uh, there was a tribute that was written uh, on Today.com right after his death by a guy named Scott Stump. And he said that uh, he, he was reminding us that Yogi Berra 
was known for his athletic talents, but he was also known for his speech talents. And so this was how he described Yogi Berra's speech talents. He says he was the king of creatively mangling the English language into quotable quips that strangely made sense, made people laugh, or both. And so he went on to quote some of the yogi-isms that, that some people call it. It ain't over till it's over. Baseball is 90% mental. The other half is physical. <laughs> when you come to a fork in the road, take it. I knew the record would stand until it was broken. You should always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. I think Little League is wonderful. It keeps the kids out of the house. I usually take a two-hour nap from one to four. He hits from both sides of the plate. He's amphibious. A nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. If you don't know where you're going, you might wind up someplace else. I want to thank everyone for making this night necessary. And then... Maybe one of the most memorable ones of all is, it's deja vu all over again. Now, you probably know that deja vu is a French phrase. Uh, apparently, it means, uh, literally means already seen. It's used, I guess, in a psychological sense. To This, this would be a, a standard definition. The feeling or illusion of having already experienced the present situation. Now, I think you could make the case that Luke kind of, uh, writes his story of Jesus in such a way that you could literally say it's deja vu all over again. And the reason I say that is when you start with the verses at the beginning of the passage that Corey read, it says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, what's interesting is there's a number of phrases there that um, a good Jewish person probably would have immediately, their radar would have gone up. They heard talk about the wilderness. They heard talk about 40 uh, days. And they might have begun to have it dawn on them that Jesus is sort of mirroring the, the experience of the children of Israel. And what's interesting is if you dive into it deeper, every one of those quotes that Jesus lifts up as he counters those temptations are from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and chapter 8. And it's a section where Moses actually sort of rehearses the Israelites' experience in the wilderness. And in fact, there's a place where um, he likens the children of Israel to God's son. And so there seems to be this idea that, that Jesus is walking in the shoes of the children of Israel. If you back up right before that passage, there's the genealogy, which is one of those, those places that we like to just skip right on over because we think, what's in there that's worth anything? I mean, you know, we were interested maybe in doing an Ancestry.com study and finding out about you know, the two, three, four, five generations back from us, but we don't necessarily always see what's the point in reading through a biblical genealogy. But what's interesting is that Luke's is different from Matthew. Luke actually traces Jesus all the way back through David, through Abraham, back to Adam. And he refers to Adam as the son of God, or a son of God. And so it's almost like Luke is suggesting to us that not only is Jesus walking in the shoes of the children of Israel, but he's kind of walking in the shoes of Adam as well. 
And just as the children of Israel faced testing in the wilderness, and they failed, way before them, back at the dawn of history, Adam was set up in the garden. God gave him a commandment, gave him a warning about breaking that commandment, and ultimately Adam himself had to face a test in the garden, which he also failed. Now when you back up a little beyond the genealogy, you go back to the baptism scene. And we hear this. Now when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Many students of the Bible would recognize at least three scriptures seem to be echoed in that. One is Psalm 2 where God's anointed king is going to rule over the nations. And so there's that language where God addresses the king in that psalm as, you are my son. It also, when you read that phrase, with you I'm well pleased, it echoes Isaiah 42, one of those servant of the Lord sections in the book of Isaiah. And in some of those places, it seems to be that the servant of the Lord is supposed to actually be Israel. But Israel has failed. And so Jesus is the one who is coming and stepping into those shoes. Then there's also that passage in Genesis chapter 22 where the Lord called Abraham to take Isaac, his only son, and sacrifice him. And the Lord actually refers to Isaac as the son that you love, your beloved son. And so all of these things maybe are intended to be sort of like a flashback to some of those events. And it's almost like deja vu all over again. And so Jesus is going into the wilderness, and as we hear all of those things in the background, and we think about how a couple of those represent huge failures on the the people of God, we may be asking ourselves the question, will this one do any better than Adam? Will he do any better than the children of Israel? And so Jesus enters into the wilderness, and he's there for 40 days. And I think the way the passage is worded, that it's not just simply that there was the three temptations at the end. Those were maybe just the climax ones. But Jesus was probably facing temptation the way it's worded throughout that whole period. And Jesus, we need to understand what he did for us. First of all, he actually came face to face with the arch enemy of our souls. He had to face him. But not only that, he had to face him and experience temptation from him. But not only that, he had to face temptation in the way that he did. Now, you think about how, how short of a period of time we go without food, and we, we don't get in a very good mood when we've gone for six, eight, ten hours without food. But Jesus went 40 days. And I think we're supposed to understand that literally, that he went through that for a, an extended period without food. And so it's very much, I think, an understatement when it says he was hungry. And he was in a great place of vulnerability. And it's probably almost impossible for us to imagine what it would be like to be him and be in his shoes. And so the devil appeals to him at his greatest place of weakness in that point. He wants to tempt him to to act on his own apart from the the will of his father to fulfill that legitimate and genuine need in that that place of great vulnerability. And yet Jesus was able to resist that temptation. And then the devil goes for the jugular. He tries to to say, you know, because we legitimately believe that Jesus was going to assume all the nations of the world. That was his birthright as 
the eternal Son of the Father. And yet, there were ways of getting to that that were not appropriate. And so, the devil tried to, to get Jesus to bow the knee to him, to become an idolater, which was really what ultimately happened with Adam and with the children of Israel and then all the kings of Israel. And yet, Jesus was able to resist that temptation and to move on. And what's significant about this is that it was necessary for Jesus to go through this, just as, as necessary as it was for him to ultimately lay down his life and death on the cross. Because if Jesus doesn't pass through this test, this first inning in the wilderness and come out with a hit, there's no need in us talking about going to Calvary. Because if Jesus doesn't act faithfully here, he can't ultimately then lay down his life as the perfect, perfect sacrifice for us to bring salvation. He would have been one more failed person, one more failed project in this plan of God unfolding. But the good news is that he did not fail. And so, therefore, he can make his way to continue as the faithful son of God throughout his ministry, ultimately making his way to Jerusalem where he would lay down his life for us. And that's the good news, is that we have hope now through the Son of God who did not fail but was faithful and therefore ultimately would be able to lay down his life for us as a sacrifice to save us from our sins. Now, I think that that's important. There's also not only does Jesus ultimately, through this act of faithfulness, become for us the source of our salvation, but he also is the model for us. Because you see, Jesus really did become a human being. He really did face temptation like we do. And although maybe none of us could say we have been to the depths of vulnerability that Jesus was in that place, that's what makes it such good news for us. Because if Jesus really was a human, and Jesus really did go to a place of vulnerability that none of us will probably ever have to go to, then that means he can be a source of strength and a model for us to give us victory in the face of our temptations. I think the first thing that Jesus models for us is that the kinds of temptations we're going to face. Our temptations sometimes can be very strong. Have you ever felt like you've been absolutely assaulted? I think about, I was just this morning, I was really kind of struggling up here getting ready to come for the sermon. And there was something about that middle hymn that really ministered to me and helped me to move forward. It reminded me of a time when I was in seminary and, uh, Melissa and I were involved at Wilmore United Methodist Church, and I was involved with some of the worship leadership there. And I can literally remember standing up front helping lead hymns one Sunday morning. And I was standing next to a person, and the most awful temptation entered my heart in relation to this person standing next to me. And I was just like, I, I can't believe I'm dealing with this. I'd like to say that the last time that I've had some thought in worship that's been way off, but I can't say that. But what was amazing was that we were singing uh, Come Thou Fount. It's a hymn that we have in our hymnal. And as we were singing this one particular line, it just seemed to resonate with what I was dealing with at that point. In fact, it may have been the line that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And it was like God heard that as my prayer in that moment. And so one moment I was dealing with this awful thought in my heart and feel like I was really wrestling with it. And it was like in the next moment, God took it away. It was amazing. And so you may be dealing with in your daily life 
It, would, it may feel like an assault. It may feel like you're just blindsided, just as Jesus was kind of blindsided. But he shows us that there can be strength to face the strongest of temptations, even if we're in a place of great weakness, and maybe precisely when we're in a, great, a place of great weakness. But I think it's also in, instructive not only about the strength of the temptations we may face, may face sometimes, but the types of temptations we may face. You know, it's interesting that the devil is tempting Jesus around his identity. Now, I used to think that uh, the devil was trying to get him to doubt that he was the Son of God. I actually find it more convincing now that what he was really trying to do was not to get Jesus to doubt that he was the Son of God, but get, to get to him to act contrary to what that actually meant. So Jesus knew that he was going to have to make his way to lay down his life on the cross. And yet, the devil seemed to want to have him short-circuit that and take a quick route to his glory. But I think sometimes our greater temptation is that we are confused about our identity. And we look for the wrong sources to define what that identity is. I think that in our day and time, uh, it's, it's very common for people to talk about their personal identity. It's, it's actually something that I think the gospel affirms. But unfortunately, I think we look in the wrong direction for where to define that. I think we tend to do it based on our feelings, based on our desires, based on our own thoughts. We ultimately are looking within ourselves and, and defining our identity based on what we're thinking, feeling, desiring, or wanting. And yet, Jesus models for us that he wants to defer to the word of God. And he wants to defer to what is written. And so he models for us the need to look not within ourselves, but without ourselves to God. And to have him speak the authoritative word that defines who and what we are. But the great thing about it is not only that, that Jesus showed, ultimately he provides the key to this victory. Both, first of all, by giving himself. But second of all, by showing us that he himself did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice there it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was led by the Spirit. Now, if you go back to the baptism scene, we notice how the, the Spirit began to show up in his life and began to work. Jesus, it says, he was actually praying at his baptism when the Spirit came. And Luke is the only gospel that really seems to emphasize in a very strong way the prayer life of Jesus. If you go back into Luke, you look in various places where Jesus would be praying and then something important would happen in his ministry. So right before he chose the 12 apostles, it said he spent a whole night in prayer. Uh, before, Jesus, uh, before Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus had been in prayer. Before the, the transfiguration, when Jesus' appearance was changed, he was in prayer. And other places where we see this dynamic going on. And so Jesus models for us that if we're going to build our life on, on what he's achieved in his life and death and resurrection, if we're going to receive the Spirit, then we also have to be people who are devoted to prayer. In fact, Jesus gives us that very point in his teaching in Luke 11 when he's talking about prayer, and he, he's the only gospel that has it worded this exact way. But he says, if your Father in heaven will give good gifts to those, excuse me, if you who are evil will give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? It's the only place where he actually gives that wording about the gift of the Spirit. And so we have to be people of prayer, 
asking for the gift of the Holy Spirit, asking for that guidance. But then finally, we have to be a people of the Word, just as Jesus was. Presumably, Jesus grew up both reading the Scriptures and hearing them read at home and in the, in the synagogue. And he probably, like any good Jew, lived out the call of Psalm 1 and Joshua 1. In Psalm 1, it talks about the person who meditates on the Word of God, and then their life is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears good fruit. Or we think about what Joshua, uh, what Joshua was, was told to do, where he said, don't let the, the Word of God depart from your mouth, but to keep it uh, within you day and night. So Jesus probably had been soaking in the Word. And so even though sometimes it's difficult to study the Word, it can be a hard book, we're encouraged to follow the example of Jesus and to let the Word of God soak in us so that when temptations come, we can smell a weasel when it comes because sometimes Satan will even use the Word and try to twist it and get us to, act, to walk off the course that God's Word would actually have us to walk on. I was reminded of a story that I thought was very, very powerful that I came across a number of years ago. There's a book called The Divine Mentor by a guy named Wayne Cordero. He pastors in Honolulu, uh, Honolulu, Hawaii. But he wrote a book called The Divine Mentor, and he referred to all of the different people in the Bible as our potential mentors. These are people whose lives and ministries and experiences were recorded so that they can serve as God's means of mentoring us, showing us the paths not to take as well as the paths to take. And what was interesting is that he has a chapter in the book where he talks about the importance of us going for fresh bread every day. He said we should be people whose aim it is is to get in the Bible every day so that God can give us a fresh batch of divine truth to build our lives up so that we can be like Jesus uh, and experience the wisdom of Jesus. And he goes on to talk about this idea of guardrails. Now, Melissa and, and our girls, we went over for uh, Melissa's dad's birthday party yesterday in Forest, and we were driving along the reservoir, and there's those, those guardrails right along there, and thank God for them, because sometimes you're thinking, you feel like you're about to fall over into the, to the reservoir. But he says that when we get fresh bread every day, God patiently and slowly begins to build some guardrails into our lives so that we don't make huge mistakes, mistakes hopefully. Uh, they, they give us the best chance possible to live a faithful life. But he talked about an experience where he had to live that out in a very profound way. He was, uh, Wayne Cordero was speaking at a conference, and he finished up, and he had a, a free night at a hotel next to the airport. And what he didn't realize is there was a lot of illicit activities that happened there. He was very tired and weary and decided he would go to the lounge uh, and, and have him a, a beverage and just relax and then go back to his room uh, to, to go to sleep for the night. This person approached him, and he thought this was somebody that was there asking about uh, his, his thoughts on the hotel services, like it was a hotel management person. But what he found out, it was, it was actually somebody inviting him into a situation where he would violate his marriage vows. And this is what he said happened in his life. He began to sort of uh, justify it. He says, immediately an inner voice interrupted. No one would know. You're in a strange hotel, in a strange part of the country, and you deserve a break today. He was beginning to get pulled into temptation. But then this happened. He says, it may have been an illusion, but I thought I saw out of the corner of my eye 
Joseph running from Potiphar's wife. And when he passed me, he yelled, You'd better follow me, Cordero, and follow me now. Excuse me, Wayne said to the woman. I forgot something in my room. And I ran to catch Joseph. When I got to my room, I bolted the door, and to this day, I'm so glad I did. Where did those parameters come from? Where did you get them? From the men and women who've been there before you. Joseph had to flee Potiphar's wife. He knew lust full. So did Samson. Abigail had to deal with David's anger as well as her own frustration. She dealt wisely. Her example will guard, your, guard you from costly mistakes. Elijah's depression found him alone in desperation. Jeremiah knew about it too. They'll both take the time to teach you. Peter left his calling to go back to fishing. He knew about the feeling of giving up. He has so much to share. So where did you get the guardrails? You incorporated them into your soul when you ate the fresh bread. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ has been faithful to walk through the wilderness so that he can then faithfully walk to the cross for us. And that, therefore, he can be the basis for our salvation. He can be our salvation. And as we accept him, and we accept the gift of the Spirit that we receive through him and through him alone, and we begin to watch him be a person of prayer as he received the Spirit, and be a person of the Word, so too we can enter into those wonderful gifts and be equipped and be given guardrails so that we can walk in this world and hopefully avoid those things which damage our relationship with God. But even if we go over the rails, be encouraged that Jesus is able to reach over the rails and reach you where you are and pull you back if you'll just be willing to call for help. Let's pray together. Our Father, I just thank you that you've given us the opportunity to consider, first of all, your son, and that he was faithful, that he was your son who took upon himself human flesh, lived a truly human life, and faced head-on the sorts of temptations that we have faced, and we have failed in the face of them, yet he was faithful. So help us to enter into his victory. Help us to walk through this season with him, going blow by blow to see just all of the things that he has faithfully done to make it possible for us to be saved from our sins and help us to experience the gift of the Holy Spirit and to learn from Jesus what it means to be a person of prayer who has been filled with the Spirit and who has been guided by the wisdom and truth of your holy written word. Bless each and every one of us and help us to grow in that. And if we have fallen far, help us, Lord, to realize that you have come to bring us back and to rescue us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and through the power of your Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen.